Welcome to the Real Player Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, RCD contributor John Waters and I speak with Bill Swanson, a Marine Corps veteran of the Battle of Guadalcanal in World War II's Pacific Campaign. Now 98 years old, Swanson is the author of The View from My Foxhole, a firsthand account of fighting at Bougainville, Guam, and Iwo Jima. Let's start first with Bill Swanson's son, Jim Swanson. Hi, John Swanson. Hey, John Waters. The View from My Foxhole, a new memoir by Bill Swanson, now 98 years old, who writes of his tour as a Marine private fighting in the Pacific. I mean, talk about an authentic story told in a really direct way. It's only 150 pages, John, but this is a great perspective of Bougainville, Guam, in Iwo Jima, uh, it's not an opportunity we get much to talk to someone who was there. Absolutely. And anybody who listens to this podcast probably is familiar with Robert Leckie's Helmet for My Pillow and E.B. Sledge's With the Old Breed. These are classic ground-level tales of combat in the Pacific in World War II. And you'll find similarities between those stories and Bill Swanson's story. They were all junior enlisted Marines the three of them. They began their service in 1942. They finished their service shortly after the war ended. Each man witnessed and participated in these in these various campaigns in the Pacific theater, horrific violence. The thing that's different about Bill's book is he's less concerned with really, really realistic descriptions of combat horror that Leckie and Sledge kind of put the stake in the ground on. He, he writes at one point, I think he says, I chose to leave out the blood, the maggots, and the blowflies. Now he, I think that comes in a passage about Bougainville in the fall of 1943. He is really focused on what he saw, what he did, and a few of the thoughts that were on his mind. One of the other really interesting things about his story is Bill Swanson is now 98 years old. He's living in Southern California. Um, but he wrote the book 30 to 40 years ago. He wrote it in the 80s, just after I think he retired uh, from his career in, in around Los Angeles. So we got the chance to speak with him, John. Yeah, it was it was a great conversation. Uh, again, as you said, we, we have very few veterans left from that period. And, and so uh, hearing from him and uh, his his humility and matter of factness uh, comes through and really hits a lot of the same themes that some of our our recent interviews uh, like uh, Bill B and the Shot uh, touched on and uh, Bravo Company etc. That I, I think modern day veterans will very much recognize the the voice that that Bill Swanson speaks with. That's really true. Uh, the th- common thread I think. It was said by none other than Bill Swanson's son, Jim Swanson, who's going to join us in a second. Uh, after reading our work with Bill B., our podcast with Bill B., former Marine who fought in Afghanistan, he said it It sounded like same Marine Corps, different war uh, from the one his dad fought in, which was a really funny way of putting it. And so we've been fortunate enough today to be joined by Jim Swanson, son of Bill Jim is a retired Border Patrol agent. He's joining us today, uh, just about five houses down from Naval Air Station, North Island. So if we hear a helicopter in the background, uh, we'll know that the Navy is busy and training just as they should be. So Jim, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. 
And so I wonder, Jim, how was your father? Uh, you see him every day. I take it. What's what is he like? He's he's doing fairly well. He's at the end of his life. Uh, he's in a hospice uh, situation. He has uh, a few bad days, but he's most of it's good for him. He's he's been in hospice since about the beginning of May, and he he says he's had a great life, and he really has. And uh, he's ready to go whenever. So he's you know at peace with with his. And so to speak, uh, it's it's been a blessing for him uh, and the family to have his story told in this way at, at the end of his life. Get some validation for not only what he went through, but for as he dedicates in his book, those whose luck ran out. That's well said. We mentioned earlier that the book, in fact, was written 30 plus years ago by Bill Swanson. And now it's just been released in 2022. How is he taking the publicity and the interest in his new book, View from My Foxhole? With, with his usual humbleness, he, he uh, you know, will say things like, yesterday I was just an average Joe, <laughs> and today I'm, I'm a published author. I don't get it. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't quite understand the, pro- there, was, there was kind of a process to the publication. It was sort of a series of serendipitous events that led to it. And uh, he was just kind of along for the ride. And we'll hear from him in our interview in a moment. But what is it like for your father to tell these stories again from his combat experiences? It, it's, a, it's a remembering for him. And, and it, as he's uh, aging and being 98 years old, I think with the book coming out and then just the fact that the war is always with him, he, uh, you know, kind of recalls quite a bit every day. The war is always with him. That's an interesting statement. And so I wonder, Jim, you grew up with your father. Uh, You were growing up with the war in a way. I guess, what did you know of your father's experiences in combat as a child and as you aged? He didn't talk about, I mean, we all knew he'd been in the Marine Corps. We knew what islands he was involved in. You know, he would tell some of the stories like the the village on Guadalcanal that they went up to uh, when they were doing some mapping and the dinner they had there, some of those things and when he was wounded. But uh, the the real nitty gritty day to day life, um, he didn't speak a lot about that. Uh, I was very surprised when he wrote the book and he kind of gave it to the family as a Christmas present. We each got a copy. And reading it for the first time, I, I didn't realize uh, everything that they went through and, um, you know, the totality of that whole experience, all the diseases and things like that. It's interesting that Bill wrote the book for his close family back in the 80s to explain to you, I take it, what the combat was like for him and so many others. And now the story is touching many, many more people, uh, but it's told with that intimacy. Uh, he wrote it for for you and for your family. Yes, it was it was uh, kind of a I don't know if it was a cathartic thing for him or whatever, but the dedication to the book, um, where he's uh, this book is dedicated first and foremost to those who uh, whose luck ran out, and then to a couple old companions, fear and misery. I think that part of the war is always with him. Uh, the, the the friends he lost. He lost very good friends early on, and then there was replacements that came along. And in, in, in his squad there on Iwo Jima of 10, I think seven were killed and three were wounded. So 
he didn't really have too many friends left that you know he had served with. It's very difficult to comprehend the magnitude of that uh, present day. It's a treasure that your father is here to tell us the story. When I think about, I mentioned Bob Leckie and E.B. Sledge, Alvin Kernan is another memoirist who comes to mind from that war in the Pacific. These three men became writers, academics. The books they wrote kind of reflect that. Your father had a different track when he came home. Can you tell us about what his career and life was like after the war? You know, recently he said, um, and, and he never told me this before, and it was just a little sideline thing. He says, I remember coming home. He, he, he was raised by his grandmother. His mother passed away when he was uh, uh, just about two years old. She had uh, uh, given birth to his brother and developed toxemia and passed away a couple weeks after his brother was born. So, And it was in 1926, just before the Depression. So it was very hard on his father. His father had been an orphan. Um, it was very hard on his father trying to raise two, you know, an infant and a little boy and, and keep his job. And they bounced around different housekeepers, things like that, different family. And they finally wound up at, at my great-grandmother's house, his, his mother's mother, and he was raised by, by her. So when he left, he was living with her when he joined the Marine Corps, and he came back home to her house when he got back. And he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, he said, yeah, I remember walking around my grandmother's backyard and wondering, what the hell am I going to do now? Because he <laughs> really had, had thought he was going to die. He didn't think he was going to survive, so he hadn't really made any life plans. And uh, he got uh, his uncle and aunt lived at the house, too. And his uncle had a – it was uh, – and he was doing odd jobs, but he was helping build houses. And my dad dug a basement for one of the houses. Uh, that was one of the first things he did. And then a couple of kids from the neighborhood that came back from the war, too, they wound up uh, working for Western Airlines. And so my dad got a job at L.A., uh, I guess it was Burbank then, um, or maybe even Glendale Airport, working for Western Airlines and um, became the uh, West, West Coast cargo agent. He got more into cargo than passenger stuff, and he was the, the cargo agent. They, the DC-3s would fly in. They'd go out, load the plane up, turn the tail around, and my dad would do the flight plan. He'd hand it on a clipboard to the pilot and take off, and that was kind of his first real job. And then he worked for Emory Air Freight for a while and uh, tried selling uh, life insurance and found out he wasn't really a salesman. <laughs> and uh, eventually, uh, his dad was working. His dad was an electrician, and he was working for the Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles. So my dad took the civil service exam for that, and uh, he got selected and, and started his career there. And he worked there up until the 80s when he retired and penned this memoir. Is that correct? Yeah, he, he retired about 1985, and uh, he gave us the book for Christmas in 89, it was, uh, I've kind of, in helping with the publisher and everything, I've gone back through some of his files and everything. And it appears to me he wrote uh, a series of short stories first, like the patrol on Bougainville on Christmas Eve. That was uh, something that he had written. And he wrote a few other things. And then eventually he kind of glued the whole thing into a book uh, that probably it probably took uh, almost four years to do it all. And the book's blends together seamlessly for the reader. You could sit down and spend several hours with it cover to cover and, and, and feel like it reads in one complete thought, one complete conversation with the author. I wonder 
one of the things I heard recently from a, a Medal of Honor winner in Iraq was that he said, war traumatizes everyone it touches. And of course, we think of those who fight war as being directly touched by war. But sometimes it comes through the generation, it comes through the children, it comes through the family. Uh, I wonder, Jim Swanson, if you felt the war as the child of someone who experienced combat. Not not in, uh, uh, I mean, the, the war was, I was born in 1952. The war was still a, a, a fresh memory for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, all the the neighbors, pretty much in the neighborhood I grew up in, their parents, fathers mostly, had been in the military. Uh, not all of them were, were frontline troops. Some of them were MPs or, you know, uh, in support roles. But people like my next door neighbor, he was in the army and uh, he won the Silver Star. His, his company was approaching a bridge and a Tiger tank came out, showed itself and everybody ran. And he was a bazooka man and even his uh, assistant ran. He loaded the bazooka himself and took the Tiger tank out. So I read the citation early on of, uh, you know, that brave man. And there, there was just, you know, different war experiences were talked about among the in the neighborhood would get together, but, you know, emotionally affecting me. Um, I knew my dad had suffered and gone through a lot, but, uh, the war was also over, you know, and, and for them, for our parents, having gone through the depression and then through the war, the 1950s and sixties were just an, an unbelievable success for them to be able to afford to buy a house, start a family, go through all of that. Um, uh, you know, the, the war was in many ways in the past and they, they were looking to the future, you know, the, the moon landing, things like that. Your dad was 18 in 1942. He writes, the depression was over and the war was on. He graduated high school in June, read about the Marines landing on Guadalcanal and decided he wanted a piece of it. And that's what took him off, put him on this adventure. Um, I wonder now at the, you said, the beginning, the end of your father, Bill Swanson's life, seeing his story start to touch people all over the country. I wonder how it feels to be his son and to get to know him in this way. Is it something new, something you didn't expect? We we never expected uh, the book to be published. It kind of came around in a, like I said, a serendipitous way of, about a year and a half ago the process started. And, you know, I'm proud of my dad. And, uh, I think I know some of the names and some of the people that were close to him that he lost and stuff. And I, I think of them and that through his book, their sec, their, their names are anonymous, you know, to history, most of them, but at least their sacrifice is going to be remembered through people reading it. And, and that's probably the biggest uh, thing that gets to me, you know, that, that, that at least, all that suffering that those people went through the, you know, there's other authors that have written, as you say, but, but uh, through those Bougainville, Guam and Iwo Jima campaigns, those that have family in the ninth Marines, things like that, at least they'll kind of know what they went through. Thank you very much, Jim. So Jim, let's, I think on that note, let's listen to John Waters interview with Bill Swanson. Sounds good. Hi, Bill. Thanks for talking with us today. Okay, yeah, thanks, same to you. Bill Swanson, you enlisted in the Marine Corps in the fall of 1942. You've written a great new memoir, The View from My Foxhole. I read it and loved it. Thank you for writing it. Well, 
one of one of those things that sometimes you have these kind of experiences that you uh, you you think other people might be interested. At least you hope they will, and and uh, and that you uh, are capable of of making it work. You know, I was fascinated by your book. Uh, you were 18 years old. You got your dad's permission to sign up to be a Marine. You'd, you'd watched Marines hitting the beach on Guadalcanal. You wanted a piece for yourself. In the book, you said the worst of times would come later, but we scarcely gave it a thought. Were you thinking about adventure in 1942 when you set off for the Pacific? Oh, I tell you what, you know, I, I had been uh, doing some, you know, maneuvers and things like that. I was, I was in the landing craft. What I was thinking about probably was just the uh, the adventure part of it. Uh, I I didn't know what what we were going to be running into. At the time we left, in those days particularly, they didn't want you to know where you were going. In case something happened, if you were captured, the enemy could have that information. So, so that, there were things like that. We, I didn't know where we were going. I, I knew basically we were going to be invading someplace, but I didn't know uh, uh, much in the way of detail. They kept you bottled up on that ship. You write a lot about being stuck in troop transport on ship and kind of not knowing what was going on. Is that right? Well, the, the less you knew in case you were captured, the better off authorities felt. Going back to World War One and some of those things, some pretty cruel tactics were reportedly used to elicit information. I remember the old the old sign saying loose lips sink ships. People were pretty careful with the information. People didn't talk much about what was coming up next for security reasons. Well they didn't go into details. The less detailed information that they had the less chance of you being tortured out of you. Those things, torture maybe didn't happen that much, but it was always, and the Germans, Germans did plenty of it. And so we're talking with Bill Swanson. He served in the Marine Corps from 1942 until 1946. He was a private when he left to fight in the Pacific. His new memoir is called The View from My Foxhole, an excellent, incredible firsthand perspective of the battle at Bougainville, Guam, and Iwo Jima. Bill, I want to go to Guadalcanal, uh, one of your first landing places when you got to the Pacific. Guadalcanal was the, the first place that, well, we first went to New Zealand, and from there it was to Guadalcanal. The first division had, uh, and the second were involved in, in Guadalcanal, and uh, I don't think there was much going on beyond that at that time. We were sent down to New Zealand, uh, at least we were told we were. Well, the New Zealanders, they were not defensively orientated, and they felt that they needed some other help. And so we and we had a double duty to go down there and, and provide this assistance along with uh, advanced training for us. And anybody who served would be familiar with those New Zealand passages. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of packing your gear, repacking your gear, hiking, getting acclimatized. And then you guys go to Guadalcanal. And Bill, what was Guadalcanal like? Guadalcanal was uh, quite different. Of course, we had been there for a while. So in the coastal areas that they had 
they started to come into and where they built airfields. That was pretty much civilized and 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 not too much jungle, but the areas beyond that point where they didn't have to be, the jungle can, can take over pretty fast after you just take enough of it out to get yourself going. So anyway, that is a pretty, uh, pretty nasty place in places like Guadalcanal, Hoganville, and, and those areas down in that part of the world. See, so the jungle could be, uh, we, quite often, uh, we were on, say, on patrol. Uh, we had to hold on to the guy's belt in the front to keep from losing sight just from one step to the other. It was so thick and just just completely, uh, you, you just, it was, an, it was an uncomfortable kind of situation to be in, particularly one you didn't know. It was not only the jungle itself, but the fact that uh, bad things were happening in the jungle, which added added to it. And you talk about hacking through the jungle in Bougainville, uh, incredible passages. But before I get to Bougainville, Bill, on Guadalcanal, there was a there was a part that really stopped me in my tracks about uh, a kamikaze plane. You wrote, "Time seems to stop as we watch in a kind of horrible fascination." unable or perhaps unwilling to believe this is really happening. The plane passes over the bow just as the front section of the ship explodes shortly after you celebrated your 19th birthday. What was that like? Well, they put me on a working party with several other guys, and we went over on this, there was one ship on the on this kind of a bay area out there, and well, this is what I was doing for oh, probably, probably a couple hours, probably, up until all of a sudden I look out the window there. A Japanese plane. This was after the after the war was too long, but also after the war was over down there. This guy's coming over and he looks over at me and I look at him. And he just sails right on down come around. Well, about that time, Captain saw out on the ship and saw the Explained it to some the ship plane and turned around. Explained that the enemy advancing towards us and, and for the to uh, working party personnel to clear the ship at once. I was over on the seaward side and I ran over to the because there was no not, nothing left by that time, even those few seconds, while people were dumping stuff off and get, getting ready and, and there was nothing available. So I ran over on the other side. And began running up along this stuff right that day. And everything was taken up. By the time the information was around, everybody was somewhere jumping in the water. And some were just had already gotten on the barges. So I kept running up the bow and I got to look around. A barge shot right down below. Slid down the barge to the barge. Now, it's probably at this time, as when we're talking about the bomb going down. And the and the bow exploded. Yet pretty soon things were, were beginning to change, and the water was beginning to get fire. There was another barge over there, and this barge was was me on it. Was heading over to that barge. There were a lot of people in the water. The water was the ocean was beginning to, to flame up and be on fire, and it was just an eerie 
eerie situation to, to deal with. So I found myself down on this part. I had had to jump off, and the ocean was on fire. The tank was on fire. There was a lot of things that happened in my world out there. Working part of detail, heavy hard work, but was more dangerous. So this, this turned out to be. <laughs> The working party was one of the most dangerous things you encountered. Is that what you say? And working parties are just, I've been on tons of them. <laughs> That's how you get things done. Uh, it, it's just part of the more or less unseen part of, of fighting a war. And that comes through in the book very clearly. I think in that occasion, you were unloading mail bags on ship off the coast of Guadalcanal. And from there... The story takes you to Bougainville, northernmost of the Solomon Islands. You write that your platoon had the dubious honor of landing in the first wave on the beach. You were anxious, but you were eager to go. You saw flashes of gunfire and explosions started hitting the water around your boat, and you jumped off soaked head to toe. Can you tell us a little bit about landing at Bougainville? On the first wave was theoretically a dangerous situation uh, because, but this was to be a surprise landing. So theoretically, uh, we, we were going to be not having that much activity on the beach. And there wasn't particularly in this bay where, where we landed on Bougainville, Empress Augusta Bay was quite a, quite a long bay like that. And at, at the northern end of it was a, they call it Cape Torquina. And there was this wide, wide bay down where we landed down on the south end of this Empress Augusta Bay. By the time I got into it, well, I was, I, I, I was getting seasick, throwing up my fossil and uh, for the evening. And it was just miserable. It wasn't, I wasn't being shot at that directly, but, but there was, and, and by the way, uh, this is the first time, and probably almost the only time, that Japanese planes came in strafing the beachhead. Where Bougainville was, they had several airfields right over, right over in the in the area. And strafing is any time you're shooting at you directly, it's a it can be fearful. It was a jungle cover out there, and what was under under the cover trying to find a place to to keep from being killed and shot at. And the planes then were coming in, and there weren't too many of them, only two or three, I think. They come on down to the, And there's something, the sound of the bullets when they're hitting the air and the cannon, it just it makes the sound so much more explosive. If you aren't fearful, when the teams are hitting around you, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> but anyway, no, you never was. I remember getting down on my belly and crawling. That's the first time they had to do this, crawling around from place to place where it looked like I might might have a chance of staying alive. And because there wasn't anything I could do offensively at, at the moment. And so that took care of pretty much that, and then the, 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 uh, we just kept moving up uh, 
as, as we do, and got to a certain point above Torquay. And uh, by the time I got up like you said, I was, I was thick as a dog, throwing up on it, taking my fox off. And, uh, but it was just kind of one of those things that eventually, by the next day, away, uh, I was back to somewhat on that way. But anyway, yeah, yeah. it was a, uh, it wasn't uh, one of the toughest ones, but it was, uh, there were more things happening uh, for the first time. Yeah. Uh, for me, on there. Yeah. Just because of the nature of the beast. You wrote of Bougainville that fear seemed to dominate everything and never knowing what the next step will bring was a special kind of terror. But then you went to Guam. Uh, a smaller island than Bougainville with less jungle, but you wrote that there were more caves, more pillboxes. Again, you hit the beach on Guam and you looked around and you saw Marines either running or Marines hugging the ground. Nobody was walking. What was it like hitting the beach on Guam? Well, Guam was, uh, was different in a lot of the ways. It was a fairly wide beach. The beach on the left is a big shale, a rock formation there. And the other groups were taking care of that. And to the right of that was an open area. And so my, my group, the Ninth Regiment, came through in, 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 in that area there. And the beach was littered for whatever reason, a bunch of caves along the beach. They were in, I hear it was Hades Caves, and they were in a miserable place. <laughs> Me and a few others were ordered to, to examine those caves because we, the lines had moved. Moved up a little bit during there. So I had to go back in and which I hated to do. And, and just, well, you know, just uh, go, go through and make, make sure that there was no enemy in there, if that part of it was clear, and go back up and, and, and proceed with the, with the day's activity. When I got back up further, then I was just, uh, kind of like, yeah, uh, like go home with uh, my, uh, one of my, uh, my uh, boy old buddies from, from Hot Rose, uh, Arvin Butterfield. He was there, he was with, with the, with the uh, same regiment I think I was. And there was another guy who was, uh, who was that? Oh, he was one of my cousins from the Midwest. Was uh, was one of the other agents, and well, this guy should live, but the cousin was killed, and we, we anyway, there's about three or four of us found ourselves with with just a few minutes to uh, do what we wanted to do, and we didn't. But it was. 
I said, it's finally, what a, what a place you have a whole home we, although we weren't being really dangerously yet, but it was still, still enough things going, going on. And uh, that, that it was a, uh, an odd, an odd eerie place to be thinking about things like that. But mm-hmm. anyway, eventually uh, things cleared up and up and down and down. Where we continued to be, me move on, and and Guam was uh, they they apparently I don't remember exactly what I think we put more intensive invasion bombardment in there than we did in Bougainville, and so we were able to move forward. At least in the areas where I was, uh, rather easily, assuming that you're, you know, you're not talking about really, easy. but to go on up and I, and there was a certain point we got to a a point where where there was a couple more caves and. I think, well, by that time, things were, they had, we were getting up to where they thought we should go at this time. And, and that was about, about the size of it. And that, uh, that night, we were told to that afternoon to, to dig in and prepare for, for, for the night in the morning. Oh, I was a cook. I had made corporal. Anyway, I, I had a couple of guys with me, and we were told to go ahead and, and dig in along this line. And at the same time that... Uh, yeah, the way... Bill, the way you compare one island to the next was remarkable, you know. Yeah, it was a funny thing. Those kind of things. Going back, I probably was more concerned about that. Looking back on it now, I can't remember that part of it there. I was thinking of other facets of it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of later that afternoon when we we came up at, at a certain point in the History at Strasbourg is the oldest day, and I, I was told to take uh, up the guys and, and dig in a an area right right up around in here. Others were going to do the same thing. So I uh, we had some new replacements come in just before the, the landing, and some of those guys have to wind up up. Over in there, I ran over to where those holes were and I jumped in. Sketch. Well, and then they were like little kids when they had prepared themselves to, to have to spend the night for the first time under wartime conditions. And when I jumped in that hole, over there, there were they thought uh, they're lucky day. Anyways, that was that was just an odd thing to 
<laughs> to remember it had nothing to do with the war itself, but it was part of my experience. And so anyway, I jumped in there with that tonight that day and then I moved up. Then the campaign is going further on up. A lot more has happened right. in that first day. And we did on Bougainville. Bougainville was long and miserable and full of constant terror. Guam was shorter. Guam was. Bougainville. Bougainville. There wasn't. See, that that was a surprise invasion in an area that was uh, completely jungle like when we got there. There was some right. some of it torn up because of explosions from artillery and things like that. But where it was Guam, once we got that, you know, the area I was talking about where I met my buddies, then then the invasion moved up forward more quickly because of all the air activity and answers that we had. And so by the time we got up in there, they, they had these villages already beginning to set up tables and uh, we went on up up further. There was another jungle area up there further and that's as far as we went for that day. So I, well, my job then was to go back and try and work with the, the guys who were coming up down there on the other side and row. When you when you do these things, you can't always do everything that you want to do at the same moment. Some things take priority. <laughs> right. So they, the main priority was for where we were landed in our in our area, at least for us. Let me let me ask a question about something you just said a minute ago, a minute or so ago. You know, because you did Bougainville, Guam. It was shorter and more violent. You move on to Iwo Jima, where you were injured. And you said a second ago that you were doing things that seemed impossible or would seem impossible to people. And you kept doing them. You kept going 27 months, I think, overseas in total. How did you keep going? Well, it's you just keep advancing, not only on the ground, but advancing in your ability to, to deal with the what you're dealing with and the deal fear. Fear is I I was able to and I was thankful I was able to overcome it. But it was it could get so so devastating. One of those things are exploding close enough by that you can be ripped apart in a second and the explosion the sound itself was so Unendurable, for like a better word. It was this other thing. By that time, I'd already been through Bougainville. And so I was a little bit aware of it. And I was able to deal with it. But I'll tell you, when the shells were exploding, and he was near, near you, there's no way to really, uh, really uh, try to convey the, the feeling of, of fear. Uh, because the things are nasty, and you you might. I've been on the periphery of it. I've been on 
or they let it be close. And when they let it be close, it uh, is uh, it's devastating. There's just no way to, to put it because it's, they, it's, what can happen when those shells, including the big one, when they explode, and they, they take a white part of the room like this, just gluing with and anybody anywhere near this place is going to get, and that's and there's even bigger ones than that. What are you going to do? And some of the shells off of the ships. So the, the the fear that that you you the people who crack up do not find a way to overcome this fear. Bill, you talked about watching people give up. You watched people, you know, sob in their foxholes, refuse to move. There was one Marine you tried to coax to get up and move, and he wouldn't. And so finally you yelled at him to get up and get moving, and he did. What was it like to watch people give up? The incident I was thinking about was on, like right after Thanksgiving. We were, the day after Thanksgiving, we did a little Thanksgiving dinner in the, in the mud, but that's okay. Oh, that next day we ordered them to move up to a, an area, up, a jungle area up further and prepared it to advance down and attack it, an enemy's drowning point down below. So when, so when we did that and then it got started and got began raining, pouring rain. And when we got down that night and prepared ourselves to advance, so we advanced down down the, the slope and the enemy began noticing that we were coming and started rubbing some shells in there. And at that at that point, one of my buddies over on, on the left, there he said it was a steep hill right back where we were coming down. And he was uh, you know, he had uh, Began crying and fell down, and I, I was sitting over on this side here, and I tried to call over to him to see if uh, if I could help him, and he, he wasn't answering. But I decided I was just over, so I I crawled over to uh, to where he was, and he was just completely out of it. Uh, right away, so I, I, uh, I did what I could. I stripped his gear off his back and whatever, so he could uh, move easier. And I got him going up this steep hill, and he just go a few feet and then stop. I couldn't hit him, but I, but I was yelling at him, get the damn ass up that hill, and eventually he would. He would slowly get get up upon her, and eventually he got it up there far enough that I, I could uh, get rid of him. But it was strange circumstances that you can't really foresee or think about. It's, a, it's an interest, interesting uh, part of life. And, and, yeah, Bill, you talk about, you know, throughout the book, 
A theme is uh, the deadly lottery, risk, chance, luck. You're pondering it from Bougainville to Guam to Iwo Jima, uh, an island that's a little more than four miles long, two and a half miles wide. This is the end of it for you. You take a wound to the hand and your NCO tells you, get off the island, you're done. And you write, now that I have been given an excuse to get away from this hellish place, I discover that my leaving my buddies is not the easy thing I thought it would be. What was it like leaving and going home? Leaving, leaving, something like Iwo Jima. That's right, Iwo Jima. The battle was almost over. Matter of fact, I think the official battle was over, except there wasn't still some uh, shelling and things like that going on because they still had territory beyond beyond that. And there was a, a jungle area just north of the area that we had, or Hill 1000 was. No, no, that, no that, Hill 1000 was further back. No, when we got up up to where, uh, where Iwo Jima itself was, uh, that was a, a, a different kind of thing. So, so there was a, a big cave, cave up there. I get up so far, and then I got, uh, we were being shelled and whatever. I got a wound in my, my right hand, and which uh, by the time the coroner ended up, I was not able to, to function with my rifle, so, so I was sent to go back and so eventually I got uh, you know through different different corpsman setups and what have you and my minor little wound but it, but I I couldn't function with it so well Bill thank you for talking with us today thank you for what you did and thank you and congratulations on this fantastic memoir the view from my foxhole by Bill Swanson. Nice talking to you. We're back now with Jim Swanson. Jim, we've just heard from your father, Bill Swanson. And one of the key themes in the book is chance, is luck. Why me and why not my friends? Why didn't they make it home? Can you tell us a little bit about what is going through your dad's mind when it comes to luck? He talks about it a lot. And the other day, he was kind of laying in bed and pointing and saying, how is it decided that I survive and you and you and you and you and you don't? And he he thanks God many times in the book for getting him through some really tight spots. But I think it's his humbleness that doesn't allow him to think that God's will let him survive and not others. Why, why is he so special? And so he brings it all down to, to luck. It's just the odds, dumb luck, whatever the odds. He can't put himself in such a special place that God would pick him and not others. And that's kind of why he discusses luck um, in that in that sense. He just it had to be luck that he made it. Other other than that, he does he can't explain it. He calls it at one point a deadly lottery in the book fighting in the Pacific was a deadly lottery. Jim Swan Swanson, take the last word, if you will. 
he said recently uh, somebody was talking to him and they were talking about war and the, and the the violence and everything of the war and and he said uh, part of in order to survive a lot of it or at least get through some of it you had to accept the unacceptable and that was kind of how he got through the first day in combat on Bougainville and and the rest of the the war that he was in was was uh, he saw so many things that were just, uh, you know, unexplainable, unacceptable, that he had to accept it in order to survive. Well, great. On that note, Jim Swanson, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us connect with your your father, Bill Swanson. The book is The View from My Foxhole. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you, gentlemen. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you'd like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.